Hey everyone, this is Vahid, one of the co-hosts of Pulse Podcast. On this episode, I got the chance to speak with Deborah Kilpatrick, the co-CEO of Evidation Health. Evidation is a company that has been working tirelessly to enable everyone to participate in better health outcomes. And it's doing this by providing a platform that collects patient data outside the clinical setting so that it can be combined with more traditional forms of medical data to then measure and deliver outcomes. Today, its platform, which is called Achievement, has grown to include over 4 million individuals, representing all 50 states and 9 out of every 10 zip codes. Its success has not gone unnoticed. Since its founding in 2012, Evidation has raised money from investors like B Capital Group, Revelation Partners, Rock Health, McKesson Ventures, Sanofi Ventures, Section 32, and G Squared. It has also worked with a range of players in healthcare, from pharma companies like Sanofi, to tech heavyweights like Apple, to physician societies like the American College of Cardiology, which you're going to hear a lot more about during this interview. Hope you enjoy. All right, Deb, it's great to have you here today. How are you doing? Great, Vahid. Uh, happy New Year. Feels like we've been shot out of a cannon right out of the <laughs> gate here, huh? Yeah, it's uh, definitely been an active January, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. We have a tradition of asking our guests an icebreaker before we start with the interview itself. What did you want to be when you grow up? Okay, so this is going to be really super boring, but then I'm going to make it better. The super boring answer is that I actually wanted to be an engineer, which is what I became. It's not as exciting <laughs> as what you might like, but I will say, what do I want to be when I grow up? I still fantasize about being a lead guitar player, <laughs> having oh. no musical skills whatsoever. <laughs> Sorry, are you practicing on the side then? No, no. It's, oh. it's, I think that's going to be a, reti- a retirement aspiration. <laughs> All right. You know, I just want to say to anyone else who's listening, I don't think engineering is at all a boring <laughs> career path. I Excellent. Thank you. As an undergrad, I was bioengineering here at Penn. To any prospective engineers, it's a great path to take. <laughs> to Excellent. I agree. I agree. I loved it so much. I got three of them. So yeah, it's, I agree. So the first thing I want to start off with today, that before we dive into Evidation Story and all the exciting things you're doing there is to learn a little bit more about your journey towards evidation. As you just mentioned, you are an engineer by training. So I'd love it if you could just share a little bit of the history in terms of how you found yourself at Evidation Health. Yes. So probably the fun fact about my background that is least known is that my first job right out of my undergrad engineering degree at Georgia Tech was to work on the F-22 Raptor program. So the reason why that's relevant to the story is that I was, at the time, few people in the world that actually got to work on one of the five Cray supercomputers that were on the planet at the time, this was in the late 80s, as part of some of the nation's programs for associated with the Cold War readiness. And I really learned about the power of computational technology to allow you to move in a really fast and efficient way to build bigger, better, faster things. In that case, it was the advanced tactical fighter, which became the F-22 Raptor. And I guess you could say I sort of fell in love with computational technology as a means of allowing you to produce new types of information and insight that would allow R&D to really be advanced to the bleeding edge. And I think that that became, in many ways, sort of the theme of what I became interested in for my career. When I was a grad student at Georgia Tech, I focused in computational mechanics 
uh, and computational techniques specifically geared towards looking at multi-phase material properties and complex material properties associated with arteries in the body as they get diseased. That led me to Guidant Corporation, where I also did a lot of work with the computational teams there to look at all sorts of new ways of modeling and understanding implant behavior at different stages of disease of atherosclerosis. And along the way, when Guidant was acquired and I ended up going into molecular diagnostics and a company called CardioDX, look, that company was completely enabled by the human genome project being declared complete and all sorts of new capabilities with regard to understanding and managing and using genomic information. These new computational platforms became really a thing none of us had imagined as a way of creating new platforms for diagnostic development and therapeutic development. And then, which is getting back to your question, what led me to evidation? I really began to believe that there, that the digital era of medicine, much like the genomic era of medicine, would be the next great entry of sort of orthogonal information into the healthcare system. And that if you could find a way to harness all of the digital data that would be produced by and around an individual person and permission that data for use, that you would create yet again the next platform for diagnostic therapeutic development and build a, a fabric of a new kind of ecosystem. And so that's a very long, a long answer to your question, but I wanted to kind of thread the whole thing together about this underpinning of computational power, technology, and enormous amounts of data. That's great. And definitely in what Evidation is doing today, we can see that continued theme of using data and the power that data has in order to push forward care and to make things more informative and better. And since you got to Evidation, can you walk us a little bit through your, I guess, rise for lack of a better word? You are a co-CEO today. How did that happen? Well, when Christine Lemke and I, who's our co-founder and and now co-CEO, president of Evidation, Christine and I met in the summer of 2014. And we really realized very quickly, having been introduced by Rowan Chapman, who was at GE Ventures at the time and was ultimately going to lead our, our Series A at Evidation, we really realized that we had very complementary skill sets. You know, she came from the tech world, the analytics world, the big data, data science world. I came from regulated products, R&D and healthcare, drug delivery systems, a very different world. And we really believed that together we could build a new kind of company to allow the stakeholders of healthcare to measure health and disease very differently. And that would be done through the power, again, of this fusion of regulated healthcare products and the incentive structures and the ecosystem associated with that, combined with not just uh, consumer technology, but very advanced data science and machine learning capabilities that were coming to be at that time. And so from the beginning, Christine and I really ran the company together as with me as CEO and, and Christine as president. And we did that for many years. And after five or six years of doing it that way, I really felt that as we move into sort of the next phase of the company's growth, that we would be enabled by as much or more technology and technology leverage, which is squarely in Christine's wheelhouse and her capabilities. And I felt that it was important for the world, for investor community, for everybody to kind of see us sitting formally in the CEO box together. And, you know, I felt it was the right thing to do. And and the board did too. and, And here we are. That's awesome. And what's that been like? So the co-CEO model isn't the most typical thing we might hear of. How's that impacted the way that Evidation runs and how you think about approaching problems? You know, if you look at the cases where co-CEO model has worked, and you're right, there's not lots of them. It's not a model that works 
in the majority of cases or even a huge significant of the minorities. I think that for us, and if you look at where it has worked, we reflect this very clearly. You've usually got people that have mutually orthogonal skill sets or skill sets that are extremely complementary and necessary to the use cases or the problems that the company is trying to solve. I think it's the first foremost. I think second, you've got to have two people whose style is naturally comfortable in a collaboration that requires a tremendous amount of transparency and sort of joint decision making. And that doesn't happen easily with a lot of styles, right? Especially a lot of CEO styles, if you think about some of the stereotypes, which have some basis in reality. I think in three, you've got to have somebody who you can each carve up the swim lanes of responsibility in a way that allows you to really completely trust them. And again, for us, for Christine, I mean, that comes back to, you know, we have very different skill sets. Right now at Evidation, the more research parts of Evidation, whether it's data science or outcomes research, those teams report up through me. Product delivery teams report up through me. GNA, whether it's legal HR, those things report up to me. And as you might expect, things like engineering reports up to Christine, things like finance, because Christine is actually a finance major, an MBA focused in finance, reports up through her. Our achievement product and all things associated with our achievement products, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, reports up through Christine. Like We've got swim lanes carved up in a way that allows us each to really thrive and be challenged by the day-to-day leadership challenges we face. But because of our mutual areas of expertise, we've just got a huge amount of trust that the other one is going to handle those things. And when you really sort of stand back and look at how it works, all three of those things that I mentioned are, are really essential. And, you know, at this point, we're good at it. We've been doing it for a number of years. We, like I said, we met in 2014. So this will be our, our seventh year of running Cavitation together. Well, congratulations on the anniversary then. Seven years is obviously a big milestone. And it's great to hear that this model is really working well for you and the company. I want to dive right into what Evidation is doing now. And to start this off, for our listeners who might be less familiar with the company and its mission, can you just provide a brief overview as to what is Evidation? Yeah. So Evidation's mission employees are, are all really motivated by is to enable and empower everyone to participate in better health outcomes. Now, the way that we do that is really by enabling people to participate in a research ecosystem and a measurement engine ecosystem that was never possible before. Uh, We allow health research to be democratized. Anybody, anywhere with phone or internet access to the web even can participate in what Evidation does. And what we're really also trying to do is allow people to be activated by that participation in a way that can allow them to navigate forward in an evidence-based way through their own healthcare journey. Again, we started with research, but as we think about where we can go from there, you'll see us talk more and more in the coming year about that latter part. You know, today that looks like roughly 4.1-ish million users on our platform, which we call achievement, that are trusting us with their data and they're permissioning it to us to participate in health research for our stakeholder customers in pharma and in the tech sector, in the biotech sector. And ultimately, it gives them a way of not just permissioning their data for use and being activated by that participation, but it gives them a way to contribute to something bigger than themselves on a scale that simply wouldn't be possible were they limited just with brick and mortar uh, clinical research. That's amazing. And Deb, you mentioned several things that we're definitely going to talk about within this interview. And I want to hone down on one of the first ones is just this idea of kind of bringing in a more full data picture, if you will. 
kind of what it sounds like is that there's this data iceberg problem. And I know you've alluded to this in some slides and some presentations you've had, where I like how you described there's this episodic data that we can see, kind of like the top of the iceberg. And historically, this is what has you know, been used to guide clinical decisions. So you get a lab test or you go to see your doctor once every six months. But then there's all this other behavioral data someone might not necessarily be tracking. And it seems like that's where evidation is coming in to really bring in the value. And what's interesting to me is, you know, when I talk to clinicians and payers and pretty much anyone, they all agree that this data would be really important for outcomes, but getting it together and being able to dissect it is pretty difficult. So can you just give me your take on data problem as Evidation sees it and how you're approaching it differently to make it usable for your patients, for your customers, and everyone else you work with? Yeah, well, the data problem itself is, I think you articulated it really well. It's like you've got the top part of the iceberg, in your words, to, that are sort of the system-generated, episodic, accessible, theory at least, data that characterizes health and disease across a person's life, right? But the reality is there's just a disproportionate, like 99% of the quote-unquote data that would be more reflective of what drives health outcomes, both in a daily basis, weekly basis, near-term basis, or long-term basis even, is really happening in the daily life of a person. It's not happening when I show up to the clinic necessarily. It's or when I intersect with brick and mortar. It's when I'm living my life, right? And so that's the problem. You know, we've not had access to the most important sets of information that reflect disproportionate drivers of health outcomes on any time scale. And so with all the data that we produce now from a person, whether it's the smartphones or march watches or other sensors associated with the things around us every day, we finally have the opportunity to capture this sort of once hidden big part of the iceberg below the water data to gain a much clearer picture of a person's health in daily life. And the problem is exactly then, also as you alluded to, you need the infrastructure, the technical scalable infrastructure to connect with people all the time, to collect that data in a way that maintains privacy, consent, and sequential consent, not just at the time of collection, but the time of use, and sustains and encourages that loop to be based on one of trust. Now that gets to be a harder problem. So it's a solvable problem. We feel like we've solved it at Evidation, and we're continuing to scale it. But that's the problem in our approach to how it gets solved. And let's talk about trust for a second. One thing that's really cool about Evidation is you do have those 4.1 million patients who are all trusting you with their data and who are participating in the things you're doing. How are you able to get patients to be so active? A lot of times you hear people struggling to get patients to even fill out a feedback form. So what is the secret sauce there? I don't mean to be trite about it, but I think the secret is you've got to show up to them on their terms in the context of their daily life, in the context of how they're living their daily life, and in the context of how they're using and interacting with technology in their daily life. None of what I just said would be describing uh, how traditional clinical trials are recruited and enrolled, right, in a traditional sense in part because nothing about going to the doctor feels like my daily life, right? Even the simplest visit to urgent care doesn't feel like my daily life, right? So how can it possibly be that traditional clinical trials would would be showing up to me on my own terms? It's just not possible. So trust is, I think, first encouraged and enabled by showing up to people on their terms. But then that's not enough. To your point you made about consent point I tried to make earlier, You can't just ask for consent in a streaming data world at the time you turn the data on, 
it's not about just data collection, it's about data use. And so you need to be able to have a way to circle back to those same people over time and reconsent them for data use for different use cases. This is where the vast majority of companies, even if they're getting consent right on the front end for collection, they're not always going back and asking for consent for subsequent use. Um, this is incredibly important for healthcare and for healthcare-related use cases. And so we benefit from having architected our system that way from the beginning. So we didn't have to go back and fix it. We just scaled what we'd already done. So that's a big secret here is the transparency associated with asking people for permission and then going back and asking them again and again in the future. It's not rocket science, but it's not the way that most systems were built. Definitely. And I think that points to a big difference between what should ideally be happening in healthcare and what we might be seeing in the tech world more broadly. When Google or any other, say, big tech player is using my data for something beyond what I might have initially given permission for, or at least what I thought I had given permission for, that is an issue of itself. But the consequences might be a little bit more limited. In healthcare, it's obviously huge, right? Where let's say I have even a genome, I might not want my genomic data to be used for a certain study that I might not support or whatever else it might be. So I think that point around permission use is really important. I think it's definitely a key takeaway from in the way Evidation has been approaching this problem. One thing I did want to kind of circle back on is you pointed to the idea of democratized access for <clears throat> patients. And what you're seeing in terms of the patients that you're able to reach, you know, historically, a lot of clinical trials might be centralized within you know, key academic medical centers or wherever else the study is taking place. What's been your experience with Evidation in terms of the patients you've been able to recruit for some of these studies? So I think the first part of the response has to be to look at historically what percentage of the U.S. adult population has ever participated in a clinical trial. And, and by this, I mean the sort of like traditional brick and mortar uh, clinical trials. And the answer is less than five, like five. Like five, one, two, three, four, five, less than 5%. That's pretty small. So that's not the fault of the system. That's just a result of brick and mortar and how people interact with brick and mortar systems, right? A certain amount of miles from your house. You have to have certain access to those systems. There's all kinds of issues with regard to access based on all kinds of aspects of social determinants of health and healthcare coverage and whether you have insurance or not, et cetera, et cetera. You can just kind of go on and on. And so when you release the constraint of having people have to intersect with brick and mortar infrastructure, when you release that constraint and you build technology that allows anybody in their daily life to participate in your ecosystem, by default, you're going to get more democratized access. So today, that 4.1 million or so people in the U.S. that are connected to us, they cover nine out of 10 zip codes in the U.S., nine out of every 10 zip codes, all 50 states, nine out of every 10 zip codes. That is extremely broad distribution. And when we were really sort of first beginning to grow this population, we didn't want to just grow it indiscriminately the way that you might be incented to do if you're a traditional consumer tech company. The top line numbers weren't the only thing that mattered. What was more important is that people trusted us, that we had broad geographic distribution, and that we were getting enough of a distribution of the population that we could actually represent therapeutic areas and their prevalence as they would be represented in, in the U.S. population on the ground. And the only way to do that would be to democratize access. And so today we cover more than 35 different therapeutic areas across that 4.1 million people. 
it trends to be more female, like 60-40, so like 60% female, 40% male. There's a very long tail on the age distribution. There are the people in achievement go out into well into their 80s. It's a very broad thing. Our big focus this year, well, actually, our big focus last year was to grow the population and achievement that were 50 and over. So like my colleagues and I, I like to say it at work, my friends and I over 50, and that has been a big focus. We've had other areas of focus before to grow in certain therapeutic areas, and we will be continuing that into 2021, as well as continuing to diversify the population based on every aspect you can imagine, whether it's, do you have a college degree or not? Whether it's, again, where zip code do you live in? Self-declared race or ethnicity? All of these parameters matter a lot besides just age and gender when it comes to healthcare coverage and therapeutic area prevalence. And, uh, and so that's a really big focus for us as we grow you know, to 5 million this year and beyond into, into 10 and, and beyond in the U.S. as we, as we think about uh, the future of validation. Definitely. And as you're pointing to, that's addressing a huge problem that we see in trials today where trials are not representative of their target patient populations. They're often fairly right. homogenous. And this does a huge amount to help kind of steer things in the right direction. I am going to ask a COVID question. I know we're probably all a little bit tired of talking about COVID. <laughs> there probably have been players who may have been a little bit more reluctant to move towards this direction in the past. And from your perspective, has COVID accelerated this at all, where now that some organizations or institutions may not be able to bring in the patients for monitoring, have you seen a greater, I guess, acceptance of these types of tools like evidations? We like to say at our board level and when we talk to investors, our view as management is that the future has been accelerated forward. When we first sort of went into lockdown in the U.S., our business didn't seem to get interrupted like a lot of traditional businesses would be, number one. Number two, our pipeline grew tremendously through 2020. We had significant revenue growth year over year, 2019 to 2020. We're projecting to do the same thing again this year based on the momentum we've experienced coming out of 2020 into 2021. So by any measure, we see the marketplace being more and more receptive and accelerating adoption of, let's call it, evidation and evidation-like products that are built around decentralizing all aspects of the healthcare ecosystem. And so for us, it wasn't about trying to adapt to a new model because of COVID. It was like watching the world adapt to our model because of COVID. And so that's been really positive for us. That said, it's been absolutely devastating to watch what has happened with regard to, in the U.S. in particular, the real failure to get this under control in a timely way and the tragedy it's causing in the U.S. population. And so one of the things we did right out of the gate was we leveraged our connective population to essentially have an observational registry of symptoms, signs, and reactions to COVID and permissioned activity data and wearables data in those populations to try and get a sense of like, how could you measure the effects of of what was going on on so many different levels? And, you know, we had 185,000 people consent to participate in that. So that told me right there that there's a willingness in the population and the interest in the population to participate in sort of, let's call it doing their part uh, from a research standpoint. You just got to show up to them on their terms and give them a way to do it. Sure. And it's actually interesting to bring that up. I think earlier today, I saw a Twitter post from someone who is talking about how even within just four days after launching that, you had over 100,000 people joined a platform, which just, again, speaks to show right. when you have something so expansive as a platform where you're reaching across the country, 
you can fairly quickly onboard people for something like a public health crisis. Right. So, yeah, that's exactly right. For you. I do want to build on the segue of some of the growth you've been experiencing in last several months and talk about some of the partnerships you have. So some people may already be familiar with Evidation's partnerships with companies like Apple or Amada. But one thing I want to highlight is something you announced in December, and that's your partnership with the American College of Cardiology to launch Achievement for Heart Health. And you know, partnering with the ACC is absolutely huge. Can you tell me a little bit more about what this means for you and the company? Oh, yes. Thank you so much for asking about this. This is something that is, I think this was in some ways, one of the most important things that happened for us as a company in 2020. And it happened, as you said, just in the last month or so, which is this partnership between Evidation and the American College of Cardiology. We're so excited about it. And so the Achievement for Heart Health program, which will be a co-created product between Evidation and the ACC, we think is really going to be seminal to understanding the complex individualized patient journeys associated with heart failure and is going to provide individuals on the other side of that equation with the opportunity to continuously monitor and learn from data relevant to their cardiovascular health. In other words, again, back to the theme I've been saying, show up to them on their own terms, give them information that can actually help them self-activate and self-direct their own care pathways. So by sharing permissioned activities, sleep, and other types of data, participants will receive personalized evidence-based education and tools while contributing to heart health research at a national scale. This is something that is a really therapeutic area-specific version of what Evidation has really sought to build over the last several years. And we couldn't be more thrilled about our partnership with the American College of Cardiology to do this as the premier physician society for cardiovascular health and delivering uh, care to this patient. And what do you think it took to get to this point? What did you need to be able to show and what point do you need to reach to be able to form a partnership like this? That's a really multifaceted question. I think that on some level, the most abstract answer might be credibility. You have to really be credible to have a physician society partner with you. I've been in healthcare for a very long time in small companies and large companies, Fortune 500 companies, small companies, uh, or public companies, private ones. That is a fact. Like You have to have credibility and not just hype to be able to partner with a physician society. And so we sought out to do that over the years. And you can see a lot of our leaders, particularly in the research side, data science side, outcomes research side, in their different publications in their track records for addressing groups like the FDA, the NIH, the National Academy, we really sought to establish ourselves as a credible voice for understanding in these issues and developing methodologies to sort of build this new kind of ecosystem we're describing. I think that's the abstract part of the question. I think the tactical part of the question is like, look, we have to have a track record. We have to have a track record in scaling a population from 50,000 people to 4.1 million people and doing it in a way that allows you to stay completely seamless and connected in the middle of a global pandemic, right? And being able to ingest data at that scale from permission data sources, clinical and consumer grade, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for years on end. You have to be able to do that in a way that allows you to have regulatory grade data handling so you can pass the audit requirements and meet the compliance requirements, both on a regulatory and quality side, of global pharma companies and global tech companies who are going to use this data for their business purposes or their regulatory purposes or their own product management purposes. So, you know, there's a lot of tactical elements of establishing a track record that allow you to 
sort of prove to the world that you're ready to take on something like a partnership with the American College of Cardiology at, at a national scale. And I guess the last thing I'll say is I like to believe we've proven ourselves to be good partners. We do what we say we're going to do. We do what we say we're going to commit to doing. And I like to believe that that's happened enough over the years that that's part of the reason that the ACC was willing to partner with us as well. For sure. And especially with cardiovascular, any insights into even being able to get patients to consider taking their statins more often or just being mindful of those types of medications have a huge impact on just overall health for a very large population. So I think what you're doing here is really amazing. And something you mentioned earlier was that this is really the first therapeutic specific application of the achievement platform on a larger scale. Do you have any sense for me other areas or other therapeutic areas where we might have the same, I guess, impact? In other words, are there any other areas where you see potential for something similar to what you're doing with the ACC? Yeah. So I think the criteria, or maybe that's probably the wrong word, maybe the characteristics, I would say is a better word, of a therapeutic area or therapeutic areas where this type of model is not just going to be successful or have the promise to be successful, but maybe arguably is necessary in order to allow people to manage their own care in a more patient-empowered way at large scale. You have to pick therapeutic areas where, A, people are dealing with these conditions over long periods of time. So they've got to sort of settle in to how they're going to manage their life and manage this condition as part of their life. B, ideally, you, you want therapeutic areas where there actually is something the patient can do, whether it's lifestyle modification or whether it's proven therapeutics and drugs that can help a person, or perhaps it's just known guideline-based care pathways that allow people to self-refer or activate into them in a way that they might not have known to do otherwise, right? So you want to have areas where there are care pathways that either exist or can be developed. It's therapeutics or lifestyle management drivers where you can do something about it and conditions where people are really going to be needing to manage them in the daily context of their life over time. And I think one of the most exciting therapeutic areas where this is true in spades is autoimmune conditions. And I think that if we look forward in terms of the types of therapeutics that are coming out now for different types of autoimmune-driven conditions, there do appear to be common biological pathways in many cases. There do appear to be common mechanisms of action that can be used and leveraged to affect therapeutic or therapeutic outcome and patient response therapy. This is extremely promising when you consider the kinds of things that we can do with regard to connected populations over time and give them tools in a way that allow them to leverage the insights from these common mechanisms of action of conditions and allow them to have sort of disease and health measured very differently in these cohorts over time in a way that simply would not be possible if you were limited to brick-and-mortar care. I think that autoimmune has to be called out as one of the most promising therapeutic areas for these types of approaches, aside from things you might think of first around you know, central nervous system conditions, movement disorders, conditions where people are really struggling to get better and also progressing at different rates in populations over time, such as with Parkinson's. Definitely. And autoimmune disorder is also an interesting space from even a cost perspective. There's been just so many therapies that have come out in that area. And as they become increasingly more expensive, it is interesting to see if there's ways to maybe figure out what specific therapy works best for a patient. So I think that's just like another way that something like evidence can really help kind of think about that cost side of the equation as well. 
Yeah, um, I would agree. I, I fully agree with that. And something else that I'd love to get your thoughts on is just thinking about the future in terms of our ability to collect data. So, you know, people have an Apple Watch and we have trackers and they might just be entering information on their phone's apps. But we've seen a huge change in just the ability of these devices and technologies to collect information. The Apple Watch was EKG. We actually interviewed Casey Means from Levels uh, not too long ago, and they're bringing glucometers to people or continuous glucose monitors to people a little bit more accessibly. Give a sense for how future technologies around data monitoring and data collection could enable new applications for something like Evidation's platform. Well, I mean, I think you don't have to look much further than the teledoc Livongo merger and sort of all the things that have been written about that to really understand and think about deeply the underlying rationale for pairing a measurement engine, a data collection engine with a care delivery engine. It's an incredibly powerful combination. For us at Evidation, we were obviously thrilled to see that transaction and that merger of those companies. We were also thrilled to see the market's reaction to it because it tells me that people are getting it. Like people are really understanding where you find synergy between measuring outcomes and measuring health and the underlying way of using that evidence as a way of, of clarifying patient journeys, measuring patient journeys, and creating new care pathways that are patient-directed. So to me, that's the market comp, if you will, for how we know this is real. I think for Evidation, like I said, there are some product development milestones that we have coming up here in 2021 that will, as they become more public, will be will give you insight more and more into how we're thinking about this and what our plans are. But certainly the partnership with the American College of Cardiology is a very visible sign that we're extremely serious about this. And we believe that just as clinical research in the 20th century was based on, was a foundation for evidence-based medicine and brick and mortar care, we believe that measurement of health and research participation in the 21st century will be a new kind of very decentralized evidence generation as a foundation for evidence-based care in a whole new way where patients themselves are able to self-direct it. Definitely. And I'll be looking out for everything you're going to be doing in 2021. Can't wait to hear about that. On the note of outcomes, one last thing I want to cover with you, Deb, is just how this all ties in with the overall direction of the healthcare ecosystem in the U.S. So let's start off with value-based care. In my experience, just my past life, I was a consultant, and we talked a lot with payers. Sometimes they've been a little bit skeptical towards claimed cost savings or what data might be able to show around the economic impact of something. So what's been the reaction you've heard from payers? And do you feel like things really are moving in the direction towards value-based care and that now we're finally able to put the data behind it? I do. And I don't mean to sound Pollyannish about it in the sense that I think this is just like overnight, we're going to suddenly be there. No, these are long journeys, right? I mean, healthcare as a sector moves at a pace, right? It's a very paced set of change. And I think that's okay. You know, we're talking about patient care. We're talking about the care of your mom and mine and my sister and your brother, right? These are serious things. In our conversations in the market, payers are generally excited about using data to better understand outcomes first. And as an engineer, you know, I was taught that if you want to change something, you got to first measure it, right? I mean, in order for us to design a faster, better, high-flying plane back in the back there in the Cold War, we first had to develop computational methodologies and test stand methodologies to measure the stress on the engine <laughs> that would be resulting from building faster, higher-flying planes. And once we did that, and once we had a new computational-based ecosystem that was very scalable for doing that, look at what we were capable of building. 
And so it's the same thing as here. That was a decades-long journey part of the aerospace industry. So these changes are going to take time. But I can say with a, a lot of confidence that measurement of outcomes is really now possible at a resolution and a scale that we could hardly have imagined a decade ago. And so because of that, I truly believe that the movement towards an outcomes-based adjudication of value is maybe not tomorrow, but it is closer around the corner than we might think. And you know, still thinking about the future of healthcare then and this idea of being able to incorporate outcomes. A lot of times when people depict future scenarios of healthcare, there's this doctor with these dashboards in front of them looking at various data points. And it sounds like one day, some of the data that Evidation is collecting and organizing could be available. How far off do you think that type of future is where now these data points around outcomes and around what's beneficial to a patient are going to be more and more incorporated into patient care directly? I don't think it's far off at all, Vahid. I think that it's, we see a future where this is, <laughs> this is relatively near term, in part because the technology is here. We well, don't have to wait for technology to be developed to be able to do this. This is, this is doable. So this is about generating evidence about what is relevant so that when you have, let's say, in your scenario there, the physician dashboard, the physician dashboard can't just be accurate information about what's going on with the patient. It has to be relevant information based on those measurements. That's the harder part is making sure we understand what's relevant, which goes back to it has to be evidence-based. It has to be based on relevance towards what's working or not for whom. So it it takes time. It's not going to like be instantaneous. However, I will say, again, back to this partnership we have with the American College of Cardiology, that is exactly why we have this partnership, right? You have to start somewhere. You have to start by looking at co-creation between industry and physicians on the technology side and the clinical relevance side and the clinical care side to identify what types of person-generated health data are meaningful for relevant care. And of those, what can you now do with that type of information to allow people to self-activate into that care so that when they do that, the physicians are able to better help them, whether it's through better efficient care or better performing care. I come from a point of view that the patient-doctor relationship is sacrosanct based on my physician, what my physician friends in the med tech industry have taught me over the years. And so it's all about how do you augment that so that people, the people part of this isn't gone but that the people part of this is empowered and enabled by better, more relevant information. That is around the corner. And I think that, again, I'll just point to back to Teladoc and Lavongo. Clearly, that's at the heart of what the market is responding to in that merger. And I think we ultimately, as patients, are all going to benefit from that. The future is sounding more and more exciting you know, as we talk about ways that some of the work that's been done in healthcare for five, 10 years is finally starting to come together. Seems like we're really starting to see those more informative and helpful tools really come into play. Before we wrap up, many of our listeners are MBA students who probably after hearing this podcast and also looking into Evidation more on their own are really excited about the company and would be interested in understanding what type of roles are you know, open and available. So can you speak to that at all? Where do you think MBAs could be helpful at Evidation and are you hiring? Yes, we are hiring. I like to say we're always hiring. We're always more talent. But to be more specific about it, so it doesn't sound so abstract and generic, you can go to the careers page on our website. You can also go to linkedin.com and you will find a plethora of open roles that Evidation is hiring for around the country, around the globe. 
if I think back about what do MBAs do at Evidation, which is another way of phrasing your question, some of them are in marketing, some of them are in sales and commercial strategy roles, some of them are in finance, some of them are in corporate development. And we have yet again, many others that have gone into management consulting and then come into Evidation after a turn in management consulting and are doing either partner success, client management, or they're doing program management on the delivery side for Evidation as we service our tech and pharma partners. So I would say there are many, many MBAs at Evidation doing a variety of roles. And I think those that are particularly good at the quant side will find a great home at Evidation. You know, there's a lot of aspects of our business and our daily life at Evidation that is heavily, heavily quant-oriented just because of the complexity of the work we do. But uh, I certainly am cognizant of the focus that many of those same people have on making sure that our clients and partners are happy and that we're delivering what we say we're going to deliver. So go to evidation.com and the careers page and, and check it out. That's awesome. And for our listeners, we'll be sure to link those pages in our uh, Medium blog post as well so you can find it easily and submit your applications. All right, Deb. So before we let you go today, I just want to ask if you have any final piece of advice for people who are interested in space or for anyone who's aspiring to be a leader in healthcare more broadly. You've been super successful yourself. So any words of advice? I think that it's really important if you want a career in healthcare to understand the incentive structures in healthcare. They're complicated, they're multifaceted, and to really understand how businesses, new businesses get created in the service of the healthcare sector, which I do believe is the right phrase, while in the service of the healthcare sector, if you want to be in this part of the, of the ecosystem, I think you really have to start by understanding kind of how money flows to the system. That's the sort of cold calculated answer. The more people-oriented answer, which I probably should have started with, is like, you have to really be committed to wanting to improve patient care. It needs to start and stop there. And but it's not a judgment, right? You don't have to be interested in that. Not everybody in the world is interested in working in patient care or working in the industry whose job it is to service patient care. But for those of us who stay in it and have spent our you know, decades of our career in it, like I think you'll find that our mission-driven nature kind of starts and stops there. And then the different things that we're doing in these different companies are all angle, have a different angle or different responsibility towards that. But it really is anchored in trying to improve patient care in some way. And I think what makes it different than every, every other part of the economy or every other vertical is that every one of us is a patient at some part of our life. Every one of us. And that makes it personal. Perfectly said. Well, Deb, thank you again so much for joining us today on the show. I found this to be a super interesting conversation. I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thanks again. And thank you for all the great work you're doing at Evidation. Thank you, Mahid. And a happy new year. And I look forward to talking to you soon. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on this latest episode. I also want to let you all know that tickets are now on sale for the 27th Annual Wharton Healthcare Conference on February 18th to 19th. Join the conversation on our industry's most pressing issues around innovation, adoption, and social inequities. Visit whcbc.org for more information. Hope to see you all there.